There are some Sundays when, uh, when the singing is so good that you don't want to come up and preach, and this is one of those Sundays for me. I don't, I don't know if y'all can hear it to me. Now, now don't get a big head. I, seriously, it sounds like y'all are singing better now than you have been months past, like you're getting better and better at it. Is that true? I, once again, I, I would not, you know, Christians don't wager and bet, right? But if I were a betting man, I would actually bet that I heard people harmonizing on some of the songs that were being sung. It was phenomenal. Let me, let me say something else about music. This is not sermon time, so if, you're, if, if you have a mental clock, all right, you can't start the clock right now. All right, you, just, you, need, to, you need to wait a minute. Let me, let me say something, though, just briefly about the singing that, that we do here, or that we want to do here, right? Well, I mean, we're a work in progress, and there, there are always ways that, that we can grow and mature and improve on our life together, what we do in our services, and everything like that. But one of the things that, uh, that struck me when we were singing, and just to sort of um, uh, share or emphasize this with you as well, one of the reasons that we want to sing old songs is not in and of itself because we, you know, we, we prize nostalgia or anything like that, right? One of the benefits of singing old songs is that when you're singing songs that Christians have been singing for a couple of hundred years or more, one of the things that we ought to be struck with is, you know, Christians 200, 300 years before were singing this song about how God is good and faithful, and 200 years later, we're still singing about God's faithfulness. Or, people have sung for two and three plus hundred years about our desperate need for God to fill our vision so that the things of this world look small and cheap and shallow in comparison. Christians have been singing that for hundreds of years. There's nothing new under the sun. That's what my heart needs. My heart needs to be convinced every day that Christ is everything. And the reason, so that's one reason why we sing old songs. That's just one. We could give more, but one, because it reminds us of the fact that, the, that, that God in Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The reason that we want to sing new songs, good new songs, is in the same way that it's, we don't sing old songs just for the sake of nostalgia, we don't sing new songs because we want to be on the cutting edge, all right? We sing new songs because good new songs is a reminder that God is so big and so great that his people are always finding new ways to articulate God's glory and his grace and his mercy. Right? So we want the best of both worlds. We want the good old hymns that remind us of the fact that God has been true from day one and will be true to himself all the way into eternity future. And then we also want songs that are new, that are good and solid and Christ-centered and biblically informed to remind us of the selves that there are always new ways to articulate the truth that is given to us in God's word and in the person of Jesus Christ. So having said all of that, for all of the good singing that was done this morning, Andy and the instrumentalists and the praise team, thank you so much for leading us through some good singing this morning. And to the, and to the congregation, thank you for singing along and singing well. All right? We really do sing to one another even as we're singing to the Lord, and this is good, good medicine for my heart, even if it's not for anyone. It, it is for yours too, right? Okay. Now you can start the internal clock. <laughs> we want to turn to Exodus 16 and hold your place there and go to Psalm 78. We're just going to use Psalm 78 just briefly as we sort of set the frame for what we'll find here in Exodus 16. Last week we were in the last paragraph of Exodus 15 where the people are three days into the wilderness, three days out of Egypt into the wilderness and they're finding no water to drink and they grumble 
about the fact that they are beginning to grow thirsty. And God comes and, and he provides for them. And we said that as you're reading the story along the lines of Exodus, one way that you can sort of track through the progression is to view Exodus, the book of Exodus, in, in three sections. The, the first section is Israel in Egypt, and the whole point there is how the Lord brings his people out of their slavery into the freedom of new life. There's a little brief section, which we're in now, with Israel in the wilderness, and then really the majority of the book is given, especially starting around chapter 19, is Israel at Sinai. The Lord comes down to meet with his people and to enter them into a formal covenant relationship with him. So Israel in Egypt, Israel in the wilderness, which is where we are now, Israel at Sinai. If you're following or if you're tracking through not just the story as it's contained in Exodus, but the story as it concerns Israel as a whole, you have to think beyond the book of Exodus and consider that what we're reading here works itself out something like this. God has redeemed, has saved a people for himself. By his power, by his strength and his might, he has broken their bonds, drawn them out of slavery, out of the affliction in Egypt. He has brought them out from there now to bring them to their new home where they will live with him. So he brought them out from there to bring them in. But the in-between is the wilderness. So in the story of Israel, God brings his people out of slavery, and he is leading them safely home, but leading them safely home takes them through a wilderness and a wasteland. And so in that respect, then, there's a very easy way that we can see ourselves in Israel's story, even in 2022. Because for anyone who has experienced salvation through Jesus Christ, we would say, we have been delivered from the chains that once held us. We are no longer bound to sin. We no longer are bound to the fear of death. God is already, by His Spirit, leading and guiding His people safely home. But until we get there, much of what we encounter and experience in this life can be likened to a wilderness experience. God will be faithful. God will be present. But there will be challenges. There will be tests. And so we want to begin to see not just Israel in her weakness, but consider that Israel's weakness, as it's revealed in these wilderness trials, is something of a mere reflection of the weakness that we ourselves share, so that when we see how God faithfully and graciously dealt with his people in their weakness, we can consider that God deals with us faithfully and graciously too. Having said that then, Exodus 16 deals with the need for food. At the end of Exodus 15, it was the need for water. Exodus 16, it's the need for food. God is going to miraculously provide. But before we read in Exodus 16, go to Psalm 78. We used a couple of these verses last week to help frame the picture with a little bit more clarity. Because if we're not careful, we may be tempted to think that really the, the beginning and end of the sinfulness of Israel in these episodes is just the fact that she is complaining, that she's grumbling, that she's got a bad attitude. But the scriptures interpret these grumblings in the wilderness in other passages and get down to what really is at root in this complaining and in this grumbling. Psalm 78 is one of those passages. So skip down with me in Psalm 78. Pick up with me at verse, uh, let's see. Mm, let's start at verse 17. Psalm 78, verse 17. Yet they still continue to sin against him, to rebel against the Most High in the desert. And in their heart, they put God to the test by asking food according to their desire. Then they spoke against God. They said, can God prepare a table in the wilderness? Behold, he struck the rock so that waters gushed out and streams were overflowing. Can he give bread also? Will he provide meat for his people? Therefore... 
the Lord heard and was full of wrath. And a fire was kindled against Jacob, and anger also mounted against Israel. And then listen, verse 22. Because they did not believe in God and did not trust in his salvation. Yet, he commanded the clouds above and opened the doors of heaven. He rained down manna upon them to eat and gave them food from heaven. Man did eat the bread of angels. He sent them food in abundance. So as we read from Exodus 16 now, consider what Psalm 78 says, that their grumbling and complaining is a sign, is an indication of the fact that in their hearts they have not come to a place where they fully trust that God is going to save them. They've experienced part of the salvation being brought out of Egypt, but in the challenges that they face now, they waver in doubt and unbelief. Listen then as we read from Exodus 16 and see if you can hear what unbelief sounds like and what unbelief looks like. For the sake of time, we're going to read a little bit at the beginning and a little bit at the end. So Exodus 16, verses 1 through 7. Then they set out from Elim, and all the congregation of the sons of Israel came to the wilderness of Sin, which is between Elim and Sinai, on the fifteenth day of the second month after their departure from the land of Egypt. So pause right there. It was after three days out of Egypt that they complained about the water. This is one month out of Egypt that they are going to be complaining about food. So all of this in a fairly short period of time. One month after seeing the miracle deliverance at the sea is where we are right now. Verse 2, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumbled against Moses and Aaron in the wilderness. The sons of Israel said to them, Would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt, when we sat by the pots of meat, when we ate bread to the full. For you have brought us out into this wilderness to kill this whole assembly with hunger. Then the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I will rain bread from heaven for you, and the people will go out and gather a day's portion every day that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. On the sixth day, when they prepare what they bring in, it will be twice as much as they gather daily. So Moses and Aaron said to all the sons of Israel, At evening you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt. And in the morning you will see the glory of the Lord, for he hears your grumblings against the Lord. And what are we that you grumble against us? Skip ahead to verse 22. So in the evening, God has provided a flock of quail to land in the camp so that they can eat meat. In the morning... He begins to provide this manna. By the way, you know what manna means? It, it actually means, what is it? That, that's what it is. It's the equivalent to the whatchamacallit candy bar. I don't know what it is. We're just going to call it what's it. So he provides that for them. Verse 22, Now on the sixth day they gathered twice as much bread, two omers for each one. When all the leaders of the congregation came and told Moses, then he said to them, This is what the Lord meant. Tomorrow is a Sabbath observance, a holy Sabbath to the Lord. Bake what you will bake and boil what you will boil, and all that is left over put aside to be kept until the morning. So they put it aside until morning, as Moses had ordered, and it did not become foul, nor was there any worm in it. Moses said, Eat it today, for today is a Sabbath to the Lord. Today you will not find it in the field. Six days you shall gather it, but on the seventh day, the Sabbath, there will be none. It came about on the seventh day that some of the people went out to gather, but they found none. Then the Lord said to Moses, How long do you refuse to keep my commandments and my instructions? See, the Lord has given you the Sabbath. Therefore, he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Remain every man in his place. Let no man go out of his place on the seventh day. So the people rested on the seventh day. 
The house of Israel named it manna, and it was like coriander seed, white, and its taste was like wafers with honey. Then Moses said, This is what the Lord has commanded. Let an omer full of it be kept throughout your generations, that they may see the bread that I fed you in the wilderness when I brought you out of the land of Egypt. Moses said to Aaron, Take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it, and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. As the Lord commanded Moses, so Aaron placed it before the testimony to be kept. The sons of Israel ate the manna forty years until they came to an inhabited land. They ate manna until they came to the border of the land of Canaan. Now an omer is a tenth of an ephah. Oh, an omer probably is, we think, maybe two quarts worth, if that, if that helps you. I don't know what a two quarts looks like, but some of you probably do. So all of this is the word of the Lord revealing to us that he is faithful and good and kind to provide for his people even when they lack faith and obedience. Bow with me in prayer. Father, we ask now as we come to your word that you would, by your grace and mercy, enable us to see those areas of our lives when we, like Israel in the Old Testament, doubt your goodness and your provision, where we call into question your saving power because of the pressures that we face in this life. Forgive us, Father, for our grumbling, unbelieving hearts. We praise you and thank you that even when we are faithless, that you remain faithful, for you cannot deny yourself. Neither can you deny your Son nor the Spirit that you have poured out in our hearts. We ask this and pray this and trust this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Savior. Amen. So the Lord provides for his people even when they lack faith and obedience. It's just a shorthand summary of what we have going on in Exodus chapter 16. So we're going to try to break this down in 16, 1 through 7, and then 16, 22 and following, the two sections that we read. We're going to try to take two main points. One, we're going to look at the Lord providing for his people when they lack faith. That's the first part. And then two, we're going to look at the Lord providing for his people when they disobey. So 16, 1, for, 1 through 7, the Lord provides for his people even when they lack faith. Before we actually get to what the Lord does, to the Lord's actions, let's try to picture, if you will, just the appalling doubt and ingratitude of Israel for everything that the Lord has done for her. 16, 2, and 3, the whole congregation of the sons of Israel grumble against Moses and Aaron, and they say, would that we had died by the Lord's hand in the land of Egypt. In other words, where we are now, it would have been better for us if instead of the Lord using his power to save us, the Lord had used his power to strike us down like he did with the Egyptian firstborn children. We'd be better off dead. Why? Well, because at least when we were in slavery, we had a better dinner menu. That's the attitude. We don't have enough to eat. Our supplies are running low. We don't think we're going to make it. When we were in slavery, we didn't have to wonder about where our food was going to come from. It'd be better off if we were still back in slavery than out here depending and trusting and relying on the Lord to provide for us. That's the attitude that's being articulated. Not explicitly, none of us are so foolish, I think, none of us are so foolish to actually say that kind of thing out loud. But once again, in light of the Scriptures and the way that they shine additional light on this, it is a heart of unbelief it is a heart that is not trusting in the salvation of the Lord that grumbles and complains. People, we need, to, we need to say right up front here, okay, once again reiterate, our grumbling and our complaining, no matter how justified we may think it is, is serious business. 
when we grumble and complain, and, and once again, we're distinguishing between groaning and grumbling. Groaning is when we're bearing up under the weight and the pressure of this life. It's hard. It's heavy. We're going to groan. God does not fault us for that. We're talking about grumbling and complaining. When we begin to speak out against our circumstances, our situation, where it is that the Lord has brought us, where He has led us, we are in our complaining and in our grumbling, we are saying that we do not trust, we do not fully believe that God is good enough to get us through this. We can rationalize and justify all we want, but at root, we are saying one of two things, that either God is unable to provide for us in our time of testing, or that God is unwilling to provide for us in our time of testing. That's blasphemous. It is to say that what God has said about himself is a lie. When you complain, when I grumble, we are accusing the Lord himself of lying about who he has said he is in his power and in his providential care. Grumbling and complaining is not a light matter. So in light of that then, it is all the more stunning that with this kind of perversity running through their hearts, leading to this complaining with the lips audibly, that the Lord would respond in the way that he does. Verse 4, the people are complaining, the people are complaining because they're doubting the Lord's provision, and what is the Lord's response? Verse 4, I will rain bread from heaven. Who does that? Who is that good and that patient? That you are speaking offensive things, that you are calling my character into question, and yet, because you are my people, I am going to shower you with blessings, and instead of striking you down like you wish you had been, I'm actually going to keep you alive. It is stunning. People, one of the reasons that it is good for us to recognize how sinful we are by nature, in and of ourselves, apart from any work that God does in us, is because the more we come to see ourselves clearly as weak and broken and misguided people, the more we marvel over how good God is to us. He does not owe us anything. And he gives every day. I am going to give, the Lord says, so that the people will know that I am the one who brought them out of the land of Egypt and so that they will see the glory of the Lord. I think this statement, you will know that the Lord brought you out of Egypt, you will see the glory of the Lord, is saying something about you are going to learn this by experience. You are going to know firsthand by your own encounter with what God is going to do that it is not Moses and Aaron who's brought you out of Egypt, but it's the Lord who's brought you out. You are going to see with your own natural eyes the glory of the Lord. The reason I think that, that that is given to the people, that you will know that the Lord has brought you out of the land of Egypt, is because of the fact that the people need to be reminded that they are where they are, namely, in the wilderness. They are there because the Lord is the one who has brought them there. Not Moses, not Aaron, 
And the reason that the Lord has brought them there and what he is trying to remind them of and impress upon them is, you are here in part because this is my work of salvation to bring you home. I would not have brought you out. I would not have brought you to myself if my intention was not to bring you all the way home. You need to know that. You need to know that in your time of testing, when you and I are tempted to complain and whine and moan and groan, that we ought to consider that the Lord has brought us to the very places that we despise, that we abhor, not because He is trying to crush us, not because He is trying to destroy us, but because He wants us to know that both in freedom from sin and in the travels and the wanderings of this life, He is the God who has brought us out and He is the God who will faithfully bring us in. We can trust Him. You will know that when you see what the Lord has done, that this is all His work. You will also see the glory of God. Now, you will see the glory of God, it says, in the morning. What, what happens in the morning? In the evening, the quail come. Right? They, they go out, gather that up, have meat to eat that night. In the morning is when the manna comes. What the people are being told is, when you wake up in the morning and you see manna on the ground, which they've never seen before at this point, what you're looking at is a sign of God's glory. Let's dig down a little bit more. Glory is the show or the display of God's splendor and His majesty. What makes Him heavy and weighty and unlike anyone else. You're going to see that when you see the manna. In other words, I think that what is going on here is that the Lord is saying, I display my glory to you when I am good to you. In fact, isn't that what Moses finds out when he's on the mountain with the Lord later in Exodus and he says, Lord, show me your glory? And what does the Lord say to Moses? No one can look on me and live, but I'll let my goodness pass by in front of you. The Lord is so unbelievably good to us, even when we are weak in faith, that His goodness can be said to be His glory. He is so good that he radiates light. He is so good that he does not look like anyone or anything else in this world. That is how good he is. And he never runs out of goodness. Let me say one more thing before we go to point number two. The Lord is doing all of this. He is being good to his people in spite of the fact that they have little to no faith that he is going to provide for them. And yet the Lord provides another day, and the day after that, and the day after that. He is good to them over and over and over again, even though they don't deserve it. In that goodness, though, look with me at verse 4. After saying that he will rain bread from heaven on them, and the people will go out and gather a day's portion every day, that I may test them whether or not they will walk in my instruction. Let's just comment briefly on this. More often than not, if we're anything alike in this respect, we hear or think of, a, of the word test with a negative connotation. So on the one hand, oh yes, God is unbelievably good to his people. Look, he's feeding them even though they've been ungrateful and even though they doubt and they complain. Ah, but we knew there was a catch. 
He's good, but he's also going to test them. You see, you almost get the idea that God is sort of hedging on his goodness because God is going to test them and show just how miserable they are. We know what's going to happen. He's going to test them and they're going to fail. Thanks, God. That's awfully good of you. That's, that's, not, that's not what testing is for God's people. Testing for God's people is God's work in revealing and refining who we are. It's like a good father or mother loving unconditionally the children that belong to them and yet at the same time recognizing that my children are not perfect and rather than keeping them at a distance or kicking them out of the house, we say, we need to fix some of these problems. We need to work on character development. That's what God does when he tests his people. God does not bring you into your wilderness experience. God does not have us in this life to test us so that we will continually fall flat on our face day in and day out, so that we will fail the test miserably. Rather, what God does as part of his goodness to us is that he allows us, he brings us to places of testing so that we can see for ourselves what truly lies in the depths of our heart because we are so, so good at deceiving ourselves. It's easy to say, it's easy to sing, blessed be the name of the Lord, when the sun is shining down on me. But when the world stops being the way that it ought to be, I'm not so spiritual anymore. God uses even the gift of manna as an opportunity to reveal to his people Something about themselves. Will they have hearts that are totally devoted and given over to me? Or will they not? And in the event that their hearts are shown to be fickle and weak, God then will set about the task of building them up in their faith. That's what he's attempting to do here. So through and through, God is good and provides for his people even when they lack faith. Number two, the Lord provides for his people even when they disobey. So the people have been told when the manna comes, every day you're supposed to go out and you're supposed to gather what you need for that day. Per person in your household, you gather about two quarts worth for yourself, two for your wife, two for your kid, right, so on and so forth. You do that every day. On the sixth day, though, because the seventh day is the Sabbath day, that's the day of rest, on the sixth day you're going to get twice as much because it's not going to be there on the Sabbath day. You are supposed to stop and rest. So the Lord, in His goodness, gives to His people what they need for life. He gives them food, food from heaven. And when the day comes that they are to wake up in the morning and enjoy a rest day, acknowledging God's provision for them, they go out and say, I need to go find more food. They disobey the clear command of the Lord. Do you, do you see, do you hear how even that act of disobedience is ultimately rooted in unbelief? It's unbelief that says, what I have with me right now is not sufficient for what I need today. Or, what the Lord said he would do, I'm not so sure that I can count on that. I need to go secure for myself more than what the Lord has given. Once again, you're back to the fact that you don't trust in the Lord's salvation. And so because they don't trust, they disobey a clear command. All of our sin, all of our disobedience at root is because of unbelief. We don't believe 
that God can satisfy all of our desires. And so we sin by chasing fulfillment in other things. Look at what the Lord says in verse 29. The Lord has given you the Sabbath, therefore he gives you bread for two days on the sixth day. Two things that the Lord has given. He's given you the Sabbath and he's given you a double helping of the manna. Which is the most important thing? Which is the greater priority in this statement in verse 29? The Sabbath or the manna? It's the Sabbath. The Lord has given you a day of rest. Therefore, He gives you food that you need on that day of rest. More important for God's people than going out and chasing more food, trying to find more resources, more important than that is for God's people to be still and to know that He is God. More important than food that we depend on to live is our sanctification. How often do we think like that? How often do we think that the Lord will give to us exactly what we need, and if He doesn't give it to us, we must not really need it. What we need, what He wants us to have, is a share of Him. So that we say with the psalmist over and over again, Whom have I in heaven but you? And beyond you I desire nothing on this earth. It's people who are not convinced that what God gives us in His salvation, namely Himself, it's people who are not convinced of that who go out chasing satisfaction and fulfillment in other places. We ought to take this kind of thinking and apply that to the way that we pursue our hobbies, to the way that we view employment, to the way that we thrust our kids into this activity and that activity, to the way that we fill our schedules up. What are we seeking? What are we after? And is it possible that some of the things that we're chasing after, we're chasing because we're not fully convinced that we have what we need in the fullness of God in Jesus Christ? Notice also that after the Lord corrects His people for their disobedience, He puts them back to rest, right? He doesn't bury them straight away in the desert. He says, no, I told you that you have what you need. You go back and rest, and so the people rest. Even that is God being good to His people, He's still giving them rest. And then, as you get to the end of the passage, verse 33, take a jar and put an omer full of manna in it and place it before the Lord to be kept throughout your generations. The Lord not only causes His people to rest when they do not want to rest, He also gives them a visible reminder of His faithful good provision so that generations to come even though they did not see manna in the wilderness can say and yet here's a reminder of the fact that God was faithful to our forefathers and he's going to be faithful to us today has God done anything like that for us today oh okay good yes that was somewhat of a leading question. You, let, you, you, followed, you followed well. Yes, he has. The visible representation that God has given his people today 
of his goodness and his faithfulness to us is when we look on the bread in the Lord's Supper. Jesus gives that bread to his disciples in the upper room, and he says, you take this, you do this, in remembrance of me. We ought to consider that in the same way that God provides for his people and yet they disobey because of their unbelief by not taking the rest that he intends to give them, that we follow in the same pattern and we do the same thing when the Lord gives us a visible reminder of his salvation in Jesus Christ in the elements of the Lord's Supper and we voluntarily, because we've got better things to do, say thanks but no thanks. I'll do it another way. Or maybe I won't even do it at all. You, you understand that when Jesus says, do this, do, do this meal, this memorial meal, in remembrance of me, that's an imperative. That's a command. You do this. Just like he said, you go out and gather, you rest on the Sabbath, you take this reminder that I have given you so that you can be built up in your faith. Finally, turn to John chapter 6. Start with me at verse 48. All of this, all of Exodus 16, shadows of the good things to come in Christ. Old Testament shadows, the substance of it belongs to Christ. Listen to what Jesus says in John chapter 6. Read with me verses 48 through 58. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread which comes down out of heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down out of heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread also which I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. The Jews began to argue with one another, saying, How can this man give us his flesh to eat? So Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. He who eats my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me, and I in him. As the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so he who eats me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread which came down out of heaven, not as the fathers ate and died. He who eats this bread will live forever. How does God show his goodness and his faithfulness to his new covenant people? He shows it in giving us his own son. And anyone who looks at the offering up of Jesus on the cross to see his body and his blood given for our life ought not to say that God would do that to get us out, but he won't do what is necessary to bring us in. Everyone that he brings out by the death of his son, he brings safely home in the life of his son. One of the problems that we have in realizing that is the problem that Israel faced. Israel is given, by God's goodness and grace, what they need to be sustained, what they need to live. That is, bread from heaven. How often do they need to go get that bread? How often? Every day. 
You can't go out and you can't try to grab enough bread that's going to sustain you for the rest of the week because you've got other plans for your morning hours. It's not going to work that way. You can't come to Christ and say, if I get a quick little fill-up or pick-me-up on Sunday, I'll be good for the rest of the week. Feeding on Christ is a daily exercise. Feeding on Christ by His Spirit in His Word is what we need daily to be sustained and to be kept alive. Let me encourage some of you right now, if you find yourself in a particular dry period of your life, it, it may be just simply because the Lord is using this as a time of testing and refining for your faith, that He will show you His goodness even in hard, difficult times. But it may also be that part of the difficulty or the heaviness of your particular test or trial is because you are not going to feed on Christ every moment of every day. And if you don't have Christ, you don't have life. But to the one who comes to feed on Christ, God in His infinite eternal goodness says, you can come every day and find what your soul so desperately needs. And you will find that tomorrow, when you wake up again, I have more to give you. And the day after that, and the day after that, we feed on Christ, and we never run to the end of His goodness and His provision. Why would we not take it? Let's pray. Father, how good and gracious you are to us, weak in faith, and so prone to wander and to disobey. We're so easily distracted, we're so easily intimidated, but we thank you that our security in you is not dependent upon our efforts, but on what you have done for us in Christ. That being said, though, Father, we ask that as we become more and more convinced, as we see your word demonstrated time and time again, that as you convince us of your truth, that your truth would also change us, that we would no longer wallow in the same doubt and disobedience, but that we would grow as maturing, confident children who are learning what it means to trust every day your goodness and your kindness. Thank you for the life that we have in Jesus Christ that is never exhausted, that never runs out. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who calls us back to our place of rest even when we have wandered away. We praise you and thank you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to respond in a song this morning. As we uh, start with a song that we, or end with a song we started with, Great is Thy Faithfulness, let's just respond to that message, uh, the true message that he is ever faithful to us. Let's stand and praise him.
close with a benediction Ephesians chapter 3 verses 17 through 19 that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God thank you you're dismissed